Hello and welcome to the Always Already podcast. We're your hosts, Rachel, Emily, and John. And today we are reading Gayatri Spivak's In Other Worlds, Essays in Cultural Politics. We're going to read three uh, chapters from this book in, partic- in particular. Uh, the first being Feminism and Critical Theory. Oh, and the second, The Politics of Interpretations. And finally, Subaltern Studies, Deconstructing Historiography. I was going to make a joke um, that we read the whole book, but you went too quickly from the title <laughs> of the book to the chapters we were going to read. Uh, and we should note for the audience that... But then you uh, talked about the joke, so that made it okay. <laughs> no, that it's funnier if you explain it, right? <laughs> we made this subtext the text very deconstructive of us. Very Shmiak of us. Uh, so we should note that we're working off of like the old version, so our page numbers might be off. And we're also like, working off very little sleep. Yes, that's true. Very little what's that? Sleep. I'm sorry, I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Although John did uh, get us some coffee today. Yeah. Really, my aunt gave me a gift card, and so thank you, Aunt Eileen. Thanks, Aunt Eileen. We miss you. (laughs) Um, We're gonna have a. Are we for sure gonna make it happen after this? The announcement. Um, Might as well. Wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel's so coy. Well, why don't we wait about the announcement? (laughs) There will be an announcement. (laughs) Clearly, there's some email thread I missed. Um, No, you just weren't listening three minutes ago. You asked the question about the what will eventually become the announcement. This is too cryptic. This is too cryptic. I'm sure I do know what you're saying, but your significant signed signifier are just not, you know. All right. Totes. Totes. On that note, here's a summary of the chapters we read. This week we read three essays from Gayatri Spivak's collection, In Other Worlds, Essays in Cultural Politics. We start with the essay entitled Feminism and Critical Theory, then continue with The Politics of Interpretation, followed finally by Subaltern Studies Deconstructing Historiography. The essays in this collection were written between 1977 and 1987 and engaged the project of reading Marx, Julia Kristeva, Edward Said, Partha Chatterjee, among many others, through the lens of feminism and deconstruction, with an eye for uncovering the contradictions of, quote, the complicity between subject and object of interpretation, end quote, for unsettling hegemonic political texts as the blueprint for understanding history and for contextualizing the role of the intellectual and his or her theories within ideology. Indeed, as she highlights throughout, the ideology ideology is never entirely escapable, even for the self-reflexive subject of investigation, attempting to unearth the biases, hegemonies, and politics of historical texts and of history itself. In her first essay that we read, Feminism and Critical Theory, Spivak reflects on the relationships among feminism, Marxism, psychoanalysis, and deconstruction, focusing specifically on reading Marx, Freud, and Derrida. She argues for a textuality that rather than getting stuck between idolizing or completely dismissing canonical thinkers, reads them beyond themselves. In this way, feminist projects and reading can resist the pull of essentialism and can actually require us to situate texts in their racialized and gendered histories. 
So for example, rather than adding feminism to the master narrative of alienation that Marx offers and stirring, thereby treating gender and race as simply another category like that of class, Within the broader critique of ideology and political economy that Marx offers, she suggests that we use the case of female reproduction, and namely, the woman's womb as analogous to the workshop, to think through what, in fact, is missing from Marx's thesis on political economy, and the ways race and gender are structurally organizing alienation and exploitation in the same way, and equally to, the way that political economy does. The essay, Politics of, Interpre of Interpretation, reflects on the absence of discussion about ideology in a collection of essays that arose from a symposium with the same title. Spivak argues that this absence itself is actually reflective of ideology at work, and that ironically, it methodologically undermines the various politics that intellectuals intend to discuss. So, for example, Kristeva's critique of psychoanalysis as a discipline is hindered by its inability to locate and contextualize the development of psychoanalytic theory within a political, economic, historical, and social context, or within ideology, and her own role as both the subject seeking to understand, but also the object of ideological influence itself without a concept of ideology is irreducible and pervasive. The contributors offer readings of Marx and of, quote, woman that are monolithic and static. As Spivak argues, quote, a persistent critique of ideology is thus forever incomplete. The final essay, Subaltern Studies Deconstructing Historiography, identifies a tension in the work of the Subaltern Studies group between the project of making a theory of subaltern consciousness and challenging the universalist posture of European humanism. Spivak engages in a reading of this work that she terms against the grain, which situates the work of the group in relation to their historiography. Where one might read this project as reifying essentialist individual consciousness, Spivak instead reads it as an emergent collection excuse me, an emergent collective consciousness that will be thought of as a strategic adherence to this essentialism, but that ultimately resists and even challenges its universalism. Her methodological move in this essay is to interrogate the relationship between the subject and the object of investigation, including her role as both subject and object within the subaltern studies group. Listen as we delve into the many questions and lines of thought that these essays generate. Enjoy. So we're going to approach this one a little bit differently than usual. Uh, Rachel, it was your idea to do this. So maybe tell uh, tell, our, tell our listeners what we're going to be doing. And, and if you don't like it, blame Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, please blame uh, me. My sly uh, intimation <laughs> of that was... As Rachel creatively suggested. As Rachel uh, forcefully... Demanded. <laughs> as Rachel forcefully demanded. Um, so normally we talk about overarching themes and topics that uh, come up across the uh, pieces we're reading. And so today I thought it might be interesting, given the challenging nature of the text, to go to particular places and do um, very close reads, and from that to kind of infer and step back and weave together what might be some of the themes that are here. Yeah. So we're going to do themes anyway? So we're going to do themes anyway, but we're going to do it in the inverse of how we normally do it. 
right. So buckle up. <laughs> Get ready. For this um, wild ride. <laughs> um, you forgot to mention that there is going to be a quasi-thematic sort of Oh, right. So one thing that I was fascinated with in each of these uh, essays is her use of the word evidence and her discussion of evidence and how that fits into her critique of Marx and her project of deconstruction um, in critiquing Marx and Freud and um, everyone else that she speaks about in the other two chapters. So I thought it might be interesting to talk about how she's using this idea of evidence, both methodologically and in terms of how it relates to the people she's discussing. Awesome. So our first quote comes on page 81. So this is from the end of part one, right before part two in Feminism and Critical Theory. So she writes, quote, part of the feminist enterprise might well be to provide, quote unquote, evidence so that these great male texts do not become great adversaries or models from whom we take our ideas and then revise or reassess them. These texts must be rewritten so that there is new material for the grasping of the production and determination of literature within the general production and determination of consciousness in society. And then if we skip down a few lines, the kind of work I have outlined would infiltrate the male academy and redo the terms of our understanding of the context and substance of literature as part of the human enterprise. Great. Should we... Emily and Rachel, go for it. <clears throat> oh, you cheated. Did I? <laughs> you, read the, you read the quotes. I you didn't, didn't want to monopolize something. the conversation <laughs> no, after reading that. Um, well, should we start time. with evidence since we're going to sort of take that up in the following two passages as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what, what is particularly... What jumps out at you about the use of evidence in this particular pa passage? I mean, I guess what I thought of first is the feminist inclination to... Prove... Um, to 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 disprove objectivity mm. and to or not necessarily to disprove i should say to qualify or um to contextualize socially the notion of objectivity and the view from nowhere mm -hmm. and so she's not quite doing that project here but but i guess it related to that in the sense of um if we think of deconstruction the way the way i visualize deconstruction is like a big trail of crumbs that are sort of like visualized as crumbs rather than sort of some solid naturalized reified thing a cookie. um like a cookie <laughs> or a highway so like a highway of crumbs <laughs> so keep going with this metaphor and, and I'm, each, I'm and each crumb is a piece of evidence each kind of contextualizing thing is a way of um showing how these texts are made so it's not so rather than i mean at the beginning she talks about marxist feminism as kind of you know um the way it relegates um gender and race to a class so to speak rather than um showing the oppression of women or racial oppression as just as structural as the the economic forces that marx talks about in his critique of political economy so i guess i see evidence as um, situating these male texts within the disciplines, times, historical context within which they arise. Interesting. Well, I, I think, so the, I mean, evidence is in scare quotes, right? I, I sort of read this as, I mean, and this might also just be because we in the discipline of feminist theory there were a like, lot of air quotes there. Folks. Oh yeah, all of those. All the of the we, words. the discipline, always the feminist, the theory. Always already air quotes. Um, 
right, like one sort of shorthand way we refer to Spivak's work is to say that she's the defender of strategic, um, yeah. you know, theorizing and use of concepts and things, right? So evidence in scare quotes, I sort of read it as maybe, mm-hmm. right, if what you're talking about is the kind of like disproving of the thesis of proof, basically, or like, right. <laughs> or capital T truth, right? right. Is that like the, the the sort of conundrum there is that to disprove the theory, you have to provide evidence which still fits into the right. the knowledge structure of providing evidence to prove a truth of something, right? So I think that like evidence plays two kinds of roles here uh, on my reading, which is one, it's like it, it borrows from the thing it's challenging, but, yeah. but the evidence actually fits into a different set of criteria for knowledge, right? Because mm. we want, right, or she wants to rewrite rather than ascertain the original truth of something, right? But, like, to do that rewriting requires drawing evidence from the thing you're rewriting that is still counted as evidence or is, you know, value just justifiably evidence. I think it's, in, yeah, in the last paragraph, she says, If we continue to work in this way, the common currency of the understanding of society will change. I think that kind of change, the coining of new money, is Mm. necessary. And I really like that use of new money. So I'm not sure how I see that. So capitalist. (laughs) As connecting to evidence. Except that, um, you know, it implies words are a form of exchange value. When she, earlier she's talking about exchange value and use value and surplus value. John yeah. is grinning, so I'm curious to know Why? what the words are, what the thoughts are in his head. No, I mean, there's so many different w- ways at which I'm engaging the things you two are saying. And they're kind of at a lot of different levels, right? There's a, I mean, just like there's a strategic level that you all have talked about. There's a um, several different epistemological registers that you all are talking in. I think there are disciplinary ways that you all are talking in terms of like feminist theory and feminist knowledge production. There's like the Marx um, issue to think about. And then there's also like methodological and kind of like uh, practices of reading that are at stake in all of this. so much into two sentences. (laughs) I know it's really good. So I'll, all right, I'm, I'm going to go for another cop out because and she talks about Wait, another um, cop out. Are you yeah. saying well, mine was the a first? No, no. I'm saying I was the first cop out by reading this quote and being like <laughs> oh. Emily and Rachel discuss. Tell me what you think. Uh, oh, so on the yeah, previous page. <laughs> yeah, you're right. On I'll the... read the title and you guys discuss. <laughs> She's gonna read another freaking quote. <laughs> I am. T- all right. I'll try to talk about this one after. Um, so on the previous page, she writes. Um, in fact, to an extent, deconstruction is the questioning of essential definitions would operate if one were to see that in Marx there is a moment of major transgression where rules for humanity and criticism of societies are based on inadequate evidence. But not evidence in scare quotes. Not in scare quotes this time. And then you skip a little further down. I would like to suggest that if the nature and history of alienation, labor, and the production of property are re-examined in terms of women's work and childbirth, it can lead us to a reading of Marx beyond Marx, right? So I think then that like the the it's the rewriting is ultimately the most important element, right? Mm-hmm. It's that 
she's like, and this is, this is, I think, something that's somewhat consistent throughout the essays that we read. And this is a deconstructive move to always track, like, what are the binaries that are either explicitly or implicitly being set up and then allowed to remain binaries, mm-hmm. right? And she wants to break us out of those modes of thought. And so for me, it's like the binary that we could fall into is, well, fuck these patriarchal, like, old dead white dudes, or, like, let's just be reverent to the old dead white dudes, mm-hmm. right? But rewriting is a way that totally takes us out of, like, the logics the and practices and epistemologies of those binaries. Yeah. Right? But, where where we can do Marx and have Marx beyond Marx, right? And do it in a way that doesn't, like, reinscribe the problems with Marx. But I think it's more than just getting outside of the yeah, logics. You're right. It's, like, you're actually right. employing a sort of, like, scare quotes, illogical logic mm, to, yeah. to that reading, which, mm-hmm. which is that, like, let's take... So, so we accept the premise that Marx's theory of alienation, it, it, that his evidence to support that theory uh, okay. is incomplete, mm-hmm. insufficient, mm-hmm. missing an entire mm-hmm. aspect yeah. of life that's untheorized. But let's not say that that insufficient evidence means mm-hmm. alienation w- is not real or we mm-hmm. should dismiss it, but rather let's try, let's theorize alienation as Marx would have us theorize it with different evidence, right? right. So that form, that's a that's a kind of like, specific sort of reading and a specific or different sort Mm. of logic right which is not like let's throw out the concept let's throw out the concept with the evidence it's like let's which makes me think of sedgwick and reparative reading as i've been thinking about throughout this whole conversation yeah right because like spivak i don't know i don't know if i would necessarily say that like the kind of reading that Spivak is doing is necessarily reparative, although I could think about it some more and maybe make that claim. Can you say what you mean? But more that, in one second, and then, uh, but more that I think that Spivak is trying to get us out of paranoid reading, Mm -hmm. the way that Sedgwick talks about paranoid reading, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, Emily and Rachel back me up, and as I try to do uh, Sedgwick's really complicated piece off the top of my head, but um, as I recall it, right, so Sedgwick is writing... And she critiques paranoid reading, like, and we might kind of subsume, like, critical theory is what's doing paranoid reading, is something that is always expecting bad news in advance, that then always gets confirmed in the reading it gives of X phenomenon, text, etc. Right? So, like, we know in advance that some really big bad thing, like capitalism and capital letters, is always hiding behind whatever it is we're looking at it. And our job is 100% and exclusively to just demystify the shit out of that text, phenomenon, whatever, Mm -hmm. and get to the answer that we kind of already know in advance. Right? Does that make sense? Is that, is that a good, like, description of part of what she's doing, part of what Cedric talks about with as paranoid mean, reading? Paranoid reading, yeah. Well, I think, too, the, it's about, I mean, if we're thinking in terms of what Spivak is doing. Please, it's about far away from that. It's about, like, confirming the conclusion, um coming to the conclusion before you've reviewed the evidence and finding the conclusion in in the evidence. Right. Like, and so and so that's like the reparative okay. move and this is a move that like I think Spivak is not Spivak and Cedric aren't on the exact same page, but I think there are affinities. But 
to kind of meld the two together, I would say that if we go to the Marx example, right, a paranoid reading would be to say, well, Marx's concept of alienation is uh, inescapably and forever wrong because he excludes women. And then we go to the text and we don't see women and our conclusion is confirmed. Right. Right. Whereas the reparative or the rewriting, to use Spivak's term, right, is to say that, you know, what would happen if, and let, let's allow ourselves to be surprised and create new concepts if we approach the concept of alienation paying attention to women and childbirth and kind of the other concerns uh, and women's work that Spivak brings to the text, right? Because then we might be able to do something new that doesn't fall back onto, you know, uh, these great male texts become adversaries or models, mm -hmm. right? The adversary model, the model model are more paranoid readings mm -hmm. where you know the answer in advance and go to the text to confirm it, whereas the rewriting enables you to do something new and as one of you was pointing out, right, if we continue to work in this way, the common currency of the understanding of society will change. It's, it's kind of funny to pair those two together, right? That like the idea that we can reread or extend, we can read Marx beyond Marx when we take into account women's work and childbirth. And then the like metaphor that demonstrates that is about currency and new money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's. I mean, that's playful, right? Right. Interesting. What do you playful mean playful? Playful or like, like Spivak's like expects the reader who's been like, oh, we're talking about Marx and now you're using the money capital circulation metaphor uh -huh. to like note that and be like, ah, oh, that's something's up with that. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I think it's supposed to be ingest with a sharp edge to it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i don't know if i could quite articulate what that sharp edge is you mean specifically the coining of new money yes yeah i thought that was the i saw that in reference to her critique of exchange use right. and surplus value right and and words the, the the need for creating new words as the as the new money the words being the exchange value or the commodity mm. rather than the the use value which is um, you know, mm. more about the, the kind of cover in, originally intended meaning and then the surplus value being almost what's extrapolated be... or taken from that um, mm. once it's a theory, once it becomes codified as a theory. Like that was kind of the, the realm that I was working in with those three things. But wouldn't it be the opposite? Because like the use, right, the critique of that is not that use value, like, we don't want to say that nothing is valuable ever, right? Right. But we, we, we want to say what's problematic is the production of surplus value, which has that, like, dehumanizing, alienating function, right? So the, like, rewriting, or this method of, this reading method, which is also rewriting, or this textuality, is a a process of like transforming the use value. Yeah, I saw the use value as I mean, this is the thing in itself mm -hmm. isn't the right phrase to, to talk mm -hmm. about it, but more related to the meaning in itself. Mm -hmm. um, and then the exchange value as the instrumentalization of that thing or mm -hmm. the commodification of that meaning. 
um, turning it into something that's extracted from or separate from its originally intended meaning. And then the surplus value is almost um, the whole economy of words or language. Yep. Or knowledge. You could say, or yeah. knowledge. Interesting. I mean, I'll give, an, I'll give another alternate way that we could use those terms. <clears throat> I'm actually... It doesn't quite map onto Marx's category so well, but I think the upshot of another way to think about it is that, like, the surplus value is, like, the work, like, the work or reputation you get by, like, throw it, like, dropping Marx's name incorrectly in, mm -hmm. like, a, like, you know, pithy way that shows that you get it and you're yeah. down, Absolutely. right? Like, that's a form of surplus value, right? I think, but... The broader problem is that it's interesting that we've gone to the value thing and interesting that Spivak goes to that at the end of that part of the essay because uh, a couple of pages earlier, she actually says, like, after going through the whole value debate, mm -hmm. she says that uh, these are important questions and these are all, the, the these refer to, like, ideas about how do we theorize questions of value with regards to women's work, right? And this is obviously one of the big debates in Marxist feminism that she's reviewing. Then she says, these are important questions, but they do not necessarily broaden Marxist theory from a feminist point of view. For our purpose, the idea of externalization or alienation is of greater interest. Right? Upon this idea of the fracturing of the human being's relationship to himself and his work as commodities rests the ethical charge of Marx's argument, right? So then after she sets up the value question as like being the important question, she then goes and says, that's important, but like, if we want to get to the ethical component, we need to turn to think about alienation, alienation. which again is a, uh, like, I lost my train of thought, but it's like, um, the way she makes that turn is I think consistent with her like idea of rewriting because mm -hmm. she says, you know, I'm going to go and use Marx and for, if I'm going to like follow Marx we make the ethical critique from the perspective of alienation, but where I take Marx beyond Marx is to say that, you know, alienation looks differently once we take into account women's work and childbirth. Yeah. Right? So I think that, like, that particular move that she makes is, like, an interesting kind of micro-scale example of what she's doing. Yeah, and I think also, like, even she uses the word allegorize, right? Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because, I don't, I mean, it, it gestures to that kind of playful notion again. Like, she's using it as a kind of creative way of entering and engaging with the text to create new concepts that right. aren't simply just adding feminism and stirring to what exists as Marxism. Mm -hmm. Should we go to another quote? Yeah, let's do the sure. one in the next chapter, yeah? Yeah, so that's on 128 in our version. Yes. I'm so glad we have this canned sound of pages shuffling we've, <laughs> we've inserted with editing. It looks really nice on the uh, on the recording, Wait, the, sound, the sound wave, 128. 128. It's 128. Uh, page 128. Um, I don't know what, I just have that page number written down, but I don't know what the quote is. Oh, she talks about wanting, oh, actually, so this is interesting. This is when she doesn't say evidence directly, but I wrote evidence in the margins. Go for it. Um, it's, it's in her critique of Kristeva. Um, and I, I wrote in the margin, she wants more evidence underlined from Kristeva. Um, and so I think um, in her discussion of, I mean, her discussion of Kristeva, well, if we actually, if we look at the third paragraph down, um, I have suggested that in Kristeva's essay, psychoanalysis is shown to sublate the contradiction between interpretation and delirium. 
When Kristeva claims that political discourse cannot pass into non-meaning, it remains to be asked how it can be posited that the Hegelian dialectic, Marxist morphology, does not accommodate a negative moment, <clears throat> Adorno, a passing into non-meaning. <laughs> that was Rachel, not Spivak. <laughs> in order to accede to truth. I have suggested elsewhere that Marx's theory of practice goes beyond this restrained dialectic. But I have tried to show here that even if Marx is not given the benefit of that doubt, and even on Kristeva's own terms, and she goes through the German meaning earlier, um, it would be inadvisable to attempt to critique Marx with so little textual mm. evidence. That's, that's what I was um, pointed at. Mm. Um, so I think here evidence takes on an interesting tone, an interesting meaning, because it's related to the one before, but it's also, I think, much more specifically about yeah. literary theory technique and techniques of reading. Um, and, and in the paragraph above... Right, because um, that's not used ironically. She's nope. yeah. literally saying that, like, this this analysis of Marx does not hold up because it doesn't have enough evidence. Right, it's, like, too easy. <laughs> and she critiques Kristeva and someone else for, like, too easily just, like, uh, dismissing Marx mm -hmm. and, like, waving him. And I think this re this actually relates quite well to her the third chapter we read. She says, let us rather investigate Marx's explicit statement, hmm. quote-unquote. Right. Is it the 11th of Marx's theses of on Feuerbach that Kristeva quotes in the epigraph? Quote, up until now, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point now is to change it. And so she goes into a critique of Kristeva's um, translation of uh, interpretation and change, suggesting that it's not as kind of direct a link as Kristeva suggests. Well, but but her, I mean, the her stakes in this are that, like... The reason for this, the thing that allows this reading of Marx with so little evidence is ideology, right? right. I mean, right. She's right. like, that's, it's not, it's not the feminist stakes, right? It's not about reading it for women. This, like, the need for evidence in this case is, or the, rather, mm. the lack of evidence, the lack of textual evidence is evidence uh, of ideology yes. at work well it's evidence of how it can be instrument of how text and word can be instrumentalized um or sort of related to your surplus value comment john because in, in the last paragraph she says perhaps a certain caution can be recommended to kristeva i have suggested that she lacks a political historical or cultural perspective on psychoanalysis as a movement and then she says no neologism is merely etymological no nomenclature is ideologically pure and i thought that kind is of is that like serious shade or <laughs> no, I, that's more explicit than shade yeah i i thought it like wasn't even deigning to shade it was just <laughs> boom straight up me you know yeah but but i think that that's it right there you need more evidence to um be able to make as bold a claim as um this neologism is etymologically um you know uh, is uh what's the word i'm looking for is a natural inevitability of this etymological trajectory rather than um, situating it within political ideology. Wait, say that again? So she, so first she gives the example, no neologism is merely etymological. Yeah. And so um, evidence in that sense would function as something if there, you need more evidence if you're going to make a claim that, oh, look at this neologism here. It's merely a natural outcome of the inevitable trajectory of etymology over time. And she's specifically referencing Kristeva's abject. Exactly. Or ab hyphen jack. Ab 
the etym the etymology thing is interesting because if we go back to the quote that we read from page one twenty eight, the kind of evidence that Spivak brings, and she does this frequently in her writing on Marx and other places too, is to go to the German, mm -hmm. right? And like so that paragraph where Rachel you read and started, let us rather investigate Marx's explicit statement with explicit statement in quotation marks, mm -hmm. right? The next several sentences of that are breaking down the German, and particularly uh, these verbs about interpretation and change, right? That's, that then lets Bivak say, as close a reader as Kristeva should note that the relationship between interpretation and change in that statement is exceedingly problematic. Mm -hmm. So, it's... sorry, I don't... No, no. I was going to fill some space, so go for oh, it. Oh, I'm just... <laughs> Filling space, filling space. Dun, da, da, da. Um, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, I is so. Is this a different reading, or a different kind of reading, or a type of reading, or a different te approach to textuality than mm. than the first essay? It's hmm. a great question. Very. Okay, I'll make I'll make the argument. Yes, I'm not sure how I committed how committed I am to this, but here I think that saying yes would involve making the claim that what Spivak is doing is doing the reading and rewriting from the perspective of ideology. Rather right? than and that that's from the perspective the of women, feminist women. Unquote, or okay. feminist theory, right? So that, you know, one of the broader points that this text makes, and, our, and so we should situate this text. So there's an issue of critical inquiry that has like a bunch of famous people that write articles about the politics of interpretation, right? Said is in there, Kristeva, uh, Stanley Cavell, Booth, these other people um, whose I'm forgetting right now. And then Spivak's writing a critical response to all of the uh, essays in that volume of critical inquiry, right? So she's going through these. She's saying the kind of the disavowal. And here I'm thinking about disavowal in like the way that Neil Roberts uses it, building and like appropriating disavowal from Freud. And you can listen to our interview with Neil Roberts to hear about how, what he means by disavowal. But I think there's like a certain disavowal of ideology that she's observing and then wants to observe the effects of that disavowal of ideology and then say, how could we rewrite these various people's texts when we're actually thinking about ideology? And then one of the effects of that rewriting is to say that there's actually this like ideology. Marks. Yeah, like there's actually this ideology of um, like individualism and free choice mm -hmm. that even the people who think they are yeah. critical of that still lapse into that because they're not paying attention to ideology or mm -hmm. something like that. Or they're right. assuming that they are able to step out of ideology exactly. despite being exactly. able to deconstruct it as all pervasive and con constituting of subjects. Yes. So, so that's a different reading in the sense that it draws on different tools and different kinds of evidence or that it takes a different point of departure. When you say reading, do you mean mm -hmm. as in like literary criticism, textual reading? Or no, do you mean then like the us reading, reading we, that we pulled out of the Got first okay. essay, right? That, that reading as a form of, um, right? I mean, it's not. Are they both deconstructive readings? Right. That's what I don't, that's what I and really I don't know. know my Derrida well enough to Me know. Me neither. Or my Spivak well enough to know. Yeah. 
It I seems guess... to me that like deconstruction is a common theme throughout all of these essays, mm-hmm. right? And the way that she and you know maybe and this again is like I don't know my Spivak or Derrida or like other like Demant or these other people well, um, but I wonder if like part of the project is looking at is thinking through different pra- thinking through and practicing different ways that deconstruction might work, right? So is the move in the first essay we read deconstruct Marx and Freud from the perspective of women or something like that mm-hmm. is the move here to but it's, de- not, but it's like reconstruct not deconstruct this, this right? is, this is the, what I'm wondering if like the affirmative deconstruction thing is play, is at play here okay. but I don't I know what that means I think okay. it's a rereading through deconstruction so, so like the intellectual project of deconstruction facilitates or foregrounds a, a rereading yes in that, both chapters, or I think in, in all three, that makes space yeah. for mm-hmm. the third world woman, um, the subaltern and its mul- multiplicity, mm-hmm. um, including by subaltern subjects doing the investigation. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, meaning her as well, and that contradiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I still think there is a a little bit of a tension. I mean, we haven't got to the third one, but I actually read the the third one as relying most on that aspect of like needing strategy in moments where Hmm. the thing you want to do is um impossible to do with pure like ideological and theoretical consistency but you do it nonetheless because the you have to recuperate this thing even if it's not possible Hmm. and Hmm. which is different i think than rereading marx from the rereading alienation, reading Marx beyond Marx. I think. I think that's. Hmm. I think that's a different kind of reading. Yeah. Like no, I can buy that. Meaning that the first one you mentioned is more about expediency and strategy. Oh, you know, you say that, and like we had a conversation with regards to the first text about. Uh, when was her use of the phrase evidence, evidence strategic? strategic? Yeah. Should we look at the third that. use of evidence in the third one? Yeah, that's yeah. nice segue. Very professional. <laughs> Slam dunk. <laughs> what was that gesture? Um, it was hitting a baseball. Because I was thinking like home run. Nope. Deconstru- you're deconstructing and rewriting. No, you're deconstructing and rewriting. That's right. Reading uh, baseball beyond baseball. <laughs> <laughs> From the perspective of women's work. <laughs> baseball beyond baseball. Podcast. A deconstructive analysis. <laughs> Emily. What Randall. page are we on? 199. Um, Is it the bottom? Yes. Um, so she's talking about cognitive failures um, okay. in the ability of. Um, <laughs> So this is, yeah, this is in the third chapter, Subaltern Studies Deconstructing Historiography. Why don't you read it? Okay. Within this tracking of successful cognitive failure, (laughs) pause for giggle, (laughs) the most interesting maneuver is to examine the production of, quote, evidence, the cornerstone of the edifice of historical truth. That's a great phrase. And to anatomize the mechanics of the construction of the self-consolidating other, the insurgent and insurgency. Oh, should I go on? Yeah. In this part of the project, oh my god, I cannot read this. In this part of the project, Goa seems to radicalize the historiography of colonial India through a combination of Soviet and Bartesian semiotic analysis. 
the discursivity, parentheses, cognitive failure, of disinterested, parentheses, successful and therefore true, historiography is revealed. The capital M muse of capital H <laughs> history and counterinsurgency are shown to be complicit. Speaking of reading, that was a great reading. That was. Better be being phonocentric. I know. Um, I love this so much because, okay, this is what I mean about this essay. I think, like, the the strategy here is to, like, read, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of possibility, I think, because we were, I was just talking about, like, Afro-pessimism again right. before this podcast, but, like, what does it mean to read something impossible in a way that, like, makes it legible enough to <laughs> to call it to the fore or to bring it I don't know and it's like hard to reword it without drawing on inadequate right. metaphors but I, I love a, inadequate metaphors can I give a pithy response it's about baseball and like <laughs> slam dunks <laughs> yeah is this essay reading subaltern studies beyond subaltern studies I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think, I think, but I think that goes to the contradiction yes. again. I think so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, because she, I think what she does is say, she's identifying a sort of like theoretical and kind of maybe even cognitive like problem of this this focus, right? Like the historiography of subaltern studies, which is like trying to recuperate or rescue or uncover or discover, right? The subaltern consciousness as something that is not, you know, enlightenment, humanist, European rationality, right? But in doing so, it positions consciousness as still the the universalizing concept right. around which we do scholarship and do history mm. right so and and so like to so to read that project beyond the insufficiency of that that maneuver is to like call it a strategic move and say that even even though it it implicates these kinds of Dis- cognitive dissonance or right. theoretical dissonance or un- incoherence or something right it like also does work i have a question and then a quote that i think really speaks to this discussion so my question is when spivak writes cognitive in this essay i kind of substituted in my mind epistemological hmm. and so maybe we can talk about why that is and is not wrong okay. or one or the other but then i want to go to page 205 <clears throat> which i think speaks to these questions about strategy in politics. Reading the work of subaltern studies from within but against the grain, which is a great phrase. And she's throughout the like throughout this text, she's always very explicit about like marking that that's what she's doing with right. subaltern studies, right? So reading the work of subaltern studies from within but against the grain, I would suggest that elements in their text would warrant a reading of the project to retrieve the subaltern consciousness is the attempt to undo a massive historiographic metalepsis and quote-unquote situate the effect of the subject as subaltern. I would read it then as a strategic use of positivist essentialism in a scrupulously visible political interest. And then she situates this project with regards to Marx, Nietzsche, Barthes, and Derrida. 
men's rights, this would allow them to use the critical force of anti-humanism. In other words, even as they share its constitutive paradox, that the essentializing moment, the object of their criticism, is irreducible. Mm, that's brilliant. That's a really good paragraph. Isn't that what I just said? Yes. I'm just kidding. Yeah, it is. But that's one of the reasons I wanted to read that paragraph, because yeah. I think it speaks exactly to the questions you um, raised. Okay, but the thing that I find difficult about this is that I okay so I realized actually I want to mark flag two things and I think we should come back to against the grain in a moment because I I also want to ask is reading against the grain a different kind of reading than the other two we already (laughs) talked about because I I'm I don't know I think I think like thinking about somebody who writes so deeply politically but from the perspective of literary theory is interesting for those of us who like spend all of our time reading right like yeah. we are also part of our politics is like how we read Absolutely. right and so i want to think about what that means but the second thing is this um her discussion of anti-humanism and western anti-humanism specifically as um in a way complicated okay this is how i read i read her discussion i think there's a tension between the way it simultaneously trivializes the project of articulating a subaltern consciousness while necessitating that project, right? Can you say that one more time? No, I think she's, I I think she's identifying this tension Mm -hmm. that's between the way Western anti-humanism both trivializes the project of discovering a subaltern consciousness while at the same time making it a necessary project. I read her saying the anti-humanist posture is troubling for the subaltern because subaltern has never been human. So to be anti-humanist from the perspective of something that's always been other to human means that the subaltern is never anything, always other and never human. Hmm. Right? Yes. I think that makes sense. But then the sort of conundrum for her is that, like... Even that posture, which is trying to, you know, break down the Eurocentric rational bent of of humanist enlightenment, um, does de- does the dehumanizing also does the he- dehumanizing to the subaltern? Yeah. yeah. Right. This is like the impossibility of the subaltern right. position, right? Emerging yeah. in, in in any other way than through like elite texts and elite discourses. Right. So the th- the question I had though was is it is that right? I don't know. So another place she talks about um strategy mm-hmm. and I don't know if this will relate to what you're saying but um I think also your question about is this a different reading the next page where she talks about historiography as strategy. Yeah. Um <laughs> And then she says, she starts by saying, can a strategy be unwitting? Of course, not fully so. And then later down, she says, a theory which allows a partial lack of fit in the fabrication of any strategy cannot consider itself immune from its own system. It must remain caught within the possibility possibility of that predicament in its own case. Um, And then later down, indeed, it is in their very insistence upon the subaltern as the subject of history that the group acts out such a translating back, an interventionist strategy that is only partially unwitting. 
Okay, I guess the question I have, which is really a question to Spivak if she were here, and I don't know that we can find it in this text, but just bear with me, is, is, is it necessarily true that reclaiming or recentering the subject of history in the thing sort of historically um, that... Okay, let's think about, let's just like use the terms master-slave just for ease of conversation without okay. getting confusing. So if if the story is that, like, if this, if this subaltern political project is that, like, history and consciousness have been written from the perspective of the master, but they're premised on the, the slaveness of the slave, right? Or require right. the slaveness of the slave. Yes. Then is the project of flipping the story... Does that necessarily reinscribe all of the bad things that come along with the master being the one to like tell the story of history, right? So if the if the idea of the subaltern, if the subaltern project, right, is like re is a historiography that says actually the subaltern is the subject of history, does that necessarily commit the same um, problems or? or harms or whatever that that like enlightenment rationality does or humanism does mm. like is it necessarily capital h humanist to relocate the subject of history in the subaltern that's the question i have hmm. i think the answer is kind of it's complicated but mm -hmm. even if it is we can do so strategically and wittingly yeah. and she's playing on this idea of what you do wittingly and unwittingly throughout yeah. this essay as well and so like I'm going to read another quote as a cop-out from me. I haven't articulated an idea. So the bottom of page 207, so this is a little bit after the quote that Rachel read a couple minutes ago. What good does a reinscription do? It acknowledges that the arena of the subaltern's persistent emergence into hegemony must always and by definition remain heterogeneous to the efforts of the disciplinary historian. The historian must persist in his efforts in this awareness that the subaltern is necessarily the absolute limit of the place where history is narrativized into logic. It is a hard lesson to learn, but not to learn it is merely to nominate elegant <clears throat> solutions to be correct theoretical practice. When has history ever contradicted that practice norms theory? Is subaltern practice norms official historiography in this case? Norms is a verb. verb yeah, I misread it. That's okay. My bad. Yeah, how, I just actually, wrote how it do you... <laughs> on the top of the page when I was reading that sentence over and over again, trying to figure out what it meant. I was like, oh, it's a verb. <laughs> what do you make of the subaltern is necessarily the absolute limit of the place where history is narrativized into logic? I had a question mark next to that. Yeah. I thought that means that the subaltern reveals um the contingency of rationality or of reason as the core driving force of history or something like that like okay i'm projecting but my thought <laughs> my thought was that if if one of the reasons to re-inscribe or recenter the subject of history is to expose the contingency upon which the other version of history relies, right? Yes. Then, like, <clears throat> that, uh, another way to think of that is that that 
history, which is the story told by someone from a perspective, becomes in narrative to, um, is substituted by logic, right? A system of thought that is kind of like naturalized, hmm. right? Got it. And so the subaltern represents the limit of that naturalizing force and the limit of that system of knowledge. But at the same time, it also reveals like the limit of <clears throat> the limit of the non-subaltern incorporation and inscription of the subaltern, right, into logics yeah. of history, right? Yeah. That's like kind of the the, the dialectical obverse of yeah. what you were saying. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's. But I have no. I mean, idea. it's. It's. I'm I just always thinking in terms of epistemology. So when yeah. I <laughs> see logic, Ooh. I think about like the forces that naturalize certain forms of knowledge, right? So the, yeah. the, like, we presume that rational exchanging of premises that fit into a mathematical logic are, is, like, the social presumption of, like, history and hmm. Eurocentrism in, in the West is that, like, that is the primary knowledge. I mean, this, this is how right. you can measure whether something is known, Right is a, this system of logic. Yeah. But the idea is that that relies on a certain conception of what counts as yeah. knowledge and who counts as a knower, right? Yeah. I don't know, man. That's this is hard. I need to read this again. I mean, I just like... Have we come to the limits of our knowledge? Our knowledge? <laughs> I, does not exist. All I, I, I honestly feel like all I can do is point to other passages and yeah. want to read them three times more slowly yeah well do we want to return to the reading question or the against the grain question as a way to wrap up sure sure i i think reading against the grain is different than the reading practice of reading marks beyond marks mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's a question of audience mm. right or a question, right? Because my thought on that is that, like, reading Marx beyond Marx is a project that is relevant, maybe, for the those who are left out of Marx and his original, you know, quote, original incarnation, yeah. right? Good but that request. it's also, like, super relevant for the the hegemonic like academy and discourse right. and stuff right but like reading against the grain seems to me to be more self-reflexive yes and like introspective Interesting. and maybe like more subversive in a way because it's like it because of that that strategic element right so it's like more a politics of resistance mm. rather than <clears throat> a politics of like re um I don't know. I mean, they're both resistance, I, I see guess. them both as resistance. I see the reading Marx Beyond Marx as, I mean, I see her project there as decentering Marx as the master narrative in a kind of mm -hmm. broader scheme as he's situated within other um, theories that arise within a broader ideology that gets overlooked. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, and the, in the last paragraph, she talks about the complicity between subject and object of investigation. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me is sort of underscored what she's doing in that last chapter. Whereas like you said, she's highlighting that gray zone between her being the subject and the object and other people in the subaltern study in several altern studies, um, speaking from the perspective of the subaltern and also using it as their object 
and doing much more of an internal critique. Mm -hmm. So the way I would answer those questions are, I think, perhaps, like, related to my different subject position is, like, the white dude among the three of us, right? Because I think that, or the I should say, the way that I related to these questions that she's asking, that you're asking, and you went to this, Emily, like, through the lens of, like, self-reflection or reflexivity or self-criticism or something, because that is one kind of common thread that I read throughout all of these, right? Mm -hmm. That, like, you know, one needs to be self-critical about their use of marks. One needs to be self-critical about right. how they're unwittingly reproducing ideology. And that, like, the answer is never just get rid of these perspectives, but, like, what? Right. how do these perspectives get transformed by attention to, like, the things operating on the margins and mm -hmm. the ideologies and what's structuring their thought that they're not relevant, we right? Which is, is perhaps a question that, like, Maybe I go to there because that's a question I need to constantly ask myself in my own work and my own thinking. When you frame it that way, I'm. it makes me want to go back and defend the claim I made earlier that the last form of reading against the grain in that sense it is more has more politics of resistance okay. implicated in it, right? Huh. In the way you've just set it up, right? The so last like, chapter, you mean? Yeah, the last chapter, hmm. right? Because you, <clears throat> right, you have, like, the self-reflexivity, right? Like, read... Um, can you give the examples you just gave? No. <laughs> um, can you just rehearse the exact I don't, I don't remember what I just said. Okay, I lost the theory. Well, the second one was, like, um, to be self-reflexive about the role ideology plays. In, yeah, something like that. Right, and the first one was to be self-reflexive about... Um, What's operating on the margins of, of your, like, your own thought that you may not actually be aware of. Right, but the self-reflexivity in the, in the latter case of reading against the grain and in specifically subaltern studies is, like, I, I mean, I think deeply resistant, right? It's, right. like, it, it's about mm -hmm, recognizing the thing you're trying to unpack a name as the limit of the thing that you're also challenging right <laughs> right which is sure. like a really deeply i think political i mean everything in some ways but... it's going <laughs> methodologically everything further by taking the critique to yourself rather than just mm -hmm. the text i don't know if that's what you're getting at but the text is this is the self is the thing right she keeps saying right. in the last chapter that the subaltern is the text, and the subaltern studies is the historia is the historian, right? So the there's like I think that's an interesting metaphor, and it's like political in a different way than the previous. Two. Because in the first one, <clears throat> the text you think is more literal. Yeah, but I don't know. What do I know? I'm full of shit. What do I know? Yeah. Should we stop on that? Yeah. Oh, no, what do I this know? is your three what podcast co-hosts full of shit. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. We're going to come back where we might still be full of shit, but we're giving advice to folks in interpreting a dream. Two questions. Canada, Canada, keywords. Canada, first, advice. 
first question. <laughs> so these, we have two questions. They come a ghost! <laughs> <laughs> well, there is. Uh, we were visited by a Dubek in this office recently, so. Sorry. That was why, funny. Why, why are you apologizing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a woman. Social constructions of gender. Got it. We have an email from listener S, who gives no location, so uh, we'll make them from Canada. Mysterious. Um, So first of all, S writes, I won't read the whole thing, but we should read a little bit of it. It was a very nice email. Firstly, (laughs) I am completely enamored with your podcast and each one of your distinct intellectual purviews. Each every episode, yes, I have thoroughly scoured the archive, has been wonderfully Amazing. generative in my own thinking. Well, the episodes on Wilderson, I am going to read this whole thing apparently, Keeling and Sassen have been particularly illuminating. So a hearty thank you for the intellectual, and I couldn't possibly forget the affective labor necessitated in the making of each podcast. Oh, thank you. You're so welcome, sad. and what a smart email. I know. <laughs> That's also, I mean... I know we joke about the affective labor of it all the time, but it's, it's real. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is. So S goes on to ask us two questions. First question, do you have any retrospective advice for your undergraduate selves with regard to <gasps> academic preparedness for graduate school as I enter my junior year of undergrad with the intent on trepidatiously entering academia professionally? Oh. I actually think you two are perfectly situated to answer this because Emily, you did admissions committee for our program before, and Rachel is currently doing admissions committee for our program. Interesting, okay. but that's different than that's okay. That's true. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so I'll answer it in. Two oh, you ways. mean because I'm on the job market, I'm thinking about it very instrumentally and strategically. Yeah. Okay, this is going to not answer that strategic part, but this is just something I thought about all the time, <laughs> ever since I figured out what I was really interested in. I wrote so many papers on things I had no interest in. And I think that was a really big mistake because I think it made me lazy, a lazy thinker. And Hmm. I had to catch up to start thinking in the plane that I like sort of knew I wanted to be thinking in, but I had never, I mean, it sounds to me like this person is already there, so like, maybe yes. that's not. <laughs> Probably everything you're doing is better than great. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I actually, I don't know, and this is like also my sort of um, non-pessimist side, but I do think one of the cool things about academia, in spite of all of its like horribleness, is being able to pursue things that you actually think are valuable and interesting and yeah, worth, agree with that. worth pursuing. And I think that that aspect of it, um, I let, I was lazy about that aspect of it as an undergrad. Like I was, I was like, I want to go to grad school, but <clears throat> I didn't bother trying to write, you know, my honors thesis was like stupid. <laughs> I've read part of it. I disagree. <clears throat> By stupid, I mean, I had zero interest in it. There you go. Okay. But I just wrote something for the sake of writing something, and I really regret that. Yeah, I I guess I don't have much to add to that, except I think one regret I do have from undergrad is not talking a lot in class. I often mm. would listen a lot carefully and go write everything in, that I thought in papers oh, and put I all agree. my effort into that, but I was way too scared to talk because I think I romanticized who everyone else was, especially mm. like 
you know, as a woman, I felt a need to like say something super duper smart. Um, and I think if I could go back in time now, I would just like regulate and like all those, all those like dude comments that, mm-hmm. you know, I was afraid to talk to at the moment or I didn't necessarily, I couldn't articulate at the moment what was perturbing me about them. Yeah. I would love to go back and. I feel that way about the first year of grad school even. Me too. Like in me addition too. to undergrad. That's a really good point. So I guess, yeah. Talk a lot. Picture yourself in the future looking back and wishing you were talking more in class. Although it sounds like you're probably already doing that. I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. If they talk in class as good as they write emails, so they'll always write a podcast. They have no issues. Um, I don't but know. That's not helpful. I know. I know. I mean, I guess like my like John. I'll go. I'll like, I'll I'll go the strategic route. Um, one thing that I wished I had done in like the transition from undergrad to grad school was, or even from the transition to like doing a master's and doing a PhD, was just I like didn't know what I was doing or getting into. Um, or, like, how to do the application process well, or mm-hmm. how to, like, research programs well, or anything like that. Um, and so, like, you know, like, I talk to people that start in the program now, and, like, I'm, I'm this is, what, my sixth year uh, here, you know, and, like, they, 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 like, knew what they were doing when yeah. they were applying, and, like, were reflected and smart and, like, had done research and, you know, all of that. And I didn't really know what I was doing, and no one gave me good enough advice for mm-hmm. me to know what I was doing. So I guess, like, do your solicit homework advice. and do, do your homework, solicit advice, like, email us if you have, like, specific questions, and we're happy to answer them privately or on air, um, you know, about, like, what that research or whatever looks like. So that's one yeah. thing. Like, even more kind of practically or concrete than that is, you know, um, like, have faculty that can hopefully do both of those things, but at the very least give you that good advice, or um write you letters mm-hmm. right and like ideally it's going to be like tenured or tenure track faculty but like you know if you're at an institution currently where there are grad students like they'll also be able to give you a different like perspective, perspective which is important sure. um and also you know <clears throat> think about at some point i think they said they were like in their junior year so like sometime in the next year and a half or i guess year or you know yeah year uh, something you can use as a writing sample, right? Make a paper for a class you're taking to be like, oh, this is point. what's going to be my writing sample. So mm-hmm. I'm going to work a little extra hard on it. And like, maybe that means I don't get to spend as much time on my other classes. final. Yeah, papers. I also think strategically to think about actual questions that are like motivating you, like I- yeah. ideological, or I mean, I'm assuming they're you know, there's a theoretical bent to your intellectual pursuits, <laughs> given that you listen to podcasts and you, you've said these conversations are generative for you. You know, like, actually think about what some questions are that are motivating you to to pursue academic study, if that is what you decide to do, right? Like, it, it's really impressive when you read a personal statement of somebody who has already um, thought about questions that they think are in need of answering, you know? I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, that kind of thoughtfulness is re- really comes across. I mean, you'd be surprised. You can read a lot in a personal statement. Right, yeah. and a trajectory that doesn't have to be, like, an obvious one. Like, yeah. it doesn't have to be like, oh, I studied Simone de Beauvoir for my freshman year through my master's program, and that's what I want to do. It, it would be more like underlying meta questions that guide your interests and your, eth- your personal ethics with relation to the world 
and and things like that. Right? So poetic. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I mean, well, John and I were talking yeah. about like, you know, we were doing practice like professional development questions with each other. Like one of them was, "What drives?" what's the underlying question driving your teaching and your research, right? So that kind of question I think is there even yeah. in classes you take as an underlying. Yeah. yeah, and like definitely. it's nascent and like let it, you know, let it emerge to the extent that it can in your, wow, yeah. That was a long answer. That was. Sorry. I hope it was helpful. But seriously, like follow up with more <clears throat> questions for us, listener S. So they have another question for us. This oh. one's a different in a different vein. I would be highly interested in hearing you all discuss your musical likes and preferences. And to give you two a second to think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a soups profesh thing right here. Oh. Stay tuned for the next episode of Epistemic Unruliness, where James will be interviewing a EDM musician informed by Deleuze. Whoa! So look at that tease. Oh. Plug. That was more of a plug than a tease. I shouldn't have given less information. But anyway. Sorry, I'm rambling. Who wants to go first? Yeah. Um, I'll go first. I like, gosh, what are, like, musical preferences? Likes and preferences. I feel like I'm making, like, a MySpace page, and I'm 19. Do it. Yeah. That's, I think, the right <laughs> mindset for this task. Um, okay. Uh, I, I don't know. I have a, I have a range, I guess. MySpace. Well, I wake up to my, um, I don't. I wake up to... You um, didn't like having to rank your top ten friends. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> That's right. Answer the question! Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so my alarm is set every morning to either Mini Ripperton or Mozart, so it goes back oh. and forth. Um, and sometimes she... democracy Just now. <laughs> okay, so, so Emily, then you I'm go. Joking, I'm joking. What's a non-douchey thing to wake up to, Emily? Tell us. My, uh... <laughs> Factory my morning, alarm. my yellow morning jacket. This local Brooklyn band. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's <laughs> a yellow morning jacket. Whatever. It's clearly a my morning jacket cover band. Whatever. That is especially sickly and yellow. Um, what I've been really into Willow Smith's album Artipithecus lately. <laughs> so good. <laughs> but that's because of the podcast. Right. It doesn't, I mean, that doesn't negate I have, like, how into it I That doesn't define but... her as a musician. <laughs> Willow? Emily. Or me. <laughs> I'm not a musician. Um, oh, am I going now? You didn't finish the answer. I know, because you like, called well, me douchey. I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I lost <laughs> my train of thought. You said Mozart. <laughs> Mozart and Minnie Ripperton. <laughs> By the way, do you know that she's um, Maya Rudolph's mother? No, I didn't. I did not know that. She is. Fun fact. Interesting fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. You have a lot of records in your apartment. Yeah, what are my records? I like, I have a lot of 70s music. Carol King, Simon and Garfunkel, Earth, Wind and Fire, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Joan Baez. Mamas and Papas. Mamas and Papas. Nice. Classic. Diana Roth. You're up. My? Me? My? Um, what have I been listening to lately? I don't know. My taste kind of span a lot. I'm. She's pretty those, eclectic. I'm one of those, like, neoliberal consumers of Spotify. <laughs> oh, yeah? Explain. Uh, I don't know. I like that they do all the work of curating for me, and I can just browse my various moods. I really... Like, because I really do have different moods, so yeah. the fact that they <laughs> you capitalize on that is like, on. I'm really, really smart of them. Good job, know? Spotify. <laughs> yeah. Very effective, neoliberal um, biopolitics. I've been really into Grimes' new album yeah. lately. Yeah. 
Um, I've also been really into... I don't know. I go between mixes of wanting something, like, really sort of beat-driven <laughs> and kind of, like monotonous to like something sort of more ethereal or folky those are my kind of two poles okay Hmm. um and the like beat driven one is more for um you know like maybe some friends come over and we're drinking wine or something i don't know maybe (laughs) we dance not that i dance um (laughs) she dances (laughs) and then like i don't know folky things are good Studying music is hard, though. I have a really hard time figuring, like, it's really hard to find the exact perfect album that goes with. You have a strategy, right? Don't you match, like, chapters with genres? That's amazing. Yeah. Say more about that. Okay. Well, I have a, all right, I could go on and on forever. So just, you two, like, tell me to stop when I should stop. Okay. All right. My general, my, (laughs) (laughs) my, like, current... Uh, musical orientation and this I think I'm pretty sure it was friend of the podcast Lindsay Whitmore who deemed like my musical interest um, ethereal lady rock because I like I like (laughs) because I I like like rock rock indie rock whatever like with women vocalists and like if there's a component of the lyrics that's about gender that's a nice bonus Mm -hmm. but like uh, like (laughs) up a level of like etherealness and so like some examples i'm thinking about are uh lower den shout out always already podcast music provider leah dion for Mm -hmm. suggesting lower dens um uh hospitality uh Olve's, blouse like these kinds of bands that are like ethereal lady indie Such rock yeah i know um and like another part of my musical interest i'm is, like i like grimes uh i like grimes too someone made Who's fun grimes? of me Lindsay made Lindsay whitmore made fun of me for liking grimes really? recently so uh because she's like 15 or no she's just, i don't know uh Lindsay, an- what's up with that another excuse me <laughs> <laughs> um she uh <laughs> right um so another kind of area is like post riot girl music so like i'm a big mm-hmm. pj harvey like slater kinney fan yep, yep. um and my like classic dude rock my like lanes are neil young and pearl jam mm. um and like another kind of genre and this is like a very like work uh study writing genre is like Sigur Rose, God is an Astronaut, um, Explosions in the Sky, mm-hmm. uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like those are great, that's like great work music, uh, like Godspeed You Black Emperor is like my intro and conclusion to my dissertation soundtrack, Sigur Rose is one of my other chapters, mm-hmm. soundtracks, um, so that's like a range of things that I'm interested in, there's a lot more, but like that's a pretty good representation of where I'm at musically for my listening. But I have lots more thoughts. <clears throat> I don't think anyone wants to hear them. But if you do, let us know. Like what kind of thoughts? Actually, I do have two other thoughts. <laughs> One other thought is that there's a really good uh, music podcast, and they like, <clears throat> and they often interact with us on Twitter. So I extra like them. But even if they didn't, I would like them. Um, <laughs> it's called Theory for Turntables. Oh yeah, oh, they're yeah. cool. That's a um, great podcast. Yeah, it's a great podcast. So go listen to them. And secondly, a discovery that the three of us made yesterday is that for both Rachel and I, and to some extent for Emily too. A karaoke go-to is no doubt for mm-hmm. all of In us. In fact, about 12 hours ago, no, I guess it would be more than that, about 18 or to 20 hours ago, I sang No Doubts Don't Speak at a karaoke party. Do you, do you think that our uh, 
individual no doubt selections are like representative of different uh aspects of our persons <laughs> i don't know i love telling people not to speak so. <laughs> not speak oh no disrespect um yeah Mine's spiderwebs. Mine's obviously. I'm just a girl, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I think. See, I think mine is like a reflection because it's like a like wishing I could disidentify with masculinity more. Yeah. And like yeah. complex feelings over being as like cis, able-bodied white man mm-hmm. and privilege and stuff. I mm-hmm. feel connected to mine in that I love a good dramatic ballad. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it. Emily, spiderweb. I just like the idea of I the lyric leave a message and I'll call you back but sung (laughs) like in really rapid succession such that all of those things are almost one word just like brings me endless joy leave a message and I call (laughs) you back (laughs) right I don't know (laughs) I'm walking in a spider it's just it's just like really satisfying to sing that's the thing that works. That's an important aspect of it. Like that on your phone. I would <laughs> love yeah. it. That should be my new uh, message. It on should be your outgoing message. Yeah. yeah. You singing it or Gwen Stefani singing it? Me singing it. Obviously. Um, do we want to do the dream or do we want to save the dream for the next episode? Let's save the dream. Yeah. Okay. Save the dream. We have talked a lot. Save Thank the dream. you, listeners, for Bernie Sanders. who are still here. Did you just say vote for Bernie Sanders? <laughs> that wow, that's political. Yeah, that's so partisan of you, Rachel Brown. Was this a it non-partisan, <laughs> apolitical podcast? <laughs> right. Sorry. We're always already political. Always already. Duh. John's voting for John Edwards. I am. I, I do love uh, his affairs. <laughs> We should probably stop <laughs> recording. Okay, wait. Can I tell a quick John Edwards story? I don't know. Sure. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, so in 2008, um, I was one of the editors of like this leftist newspaper that got uh, money from Campus Progress, which is part of Center for American Progress. Mm-hmm. And so like, I was able to <laughs> thanks shout out Campus Progress. Uh, I got to go to like their national student conference mm-hmm. um, and they paid for the airfare so that was great um, and the keynote speaker was John Edwards and this is like literally a few days before news broke of the whole John Edwards scandal so I saw like wow. the last moment of John Edwards at his like pinnacle before the fall did you like him before the fall in that I speech? liked him fine you know like yeah. as much so far as I like any like slightly progressive democrat <laughs> <laughs> Which is really not so progressive. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> what is progress? What is progress? Stay tuned next time to find out. <laughs> that was no, but great. seriously, email us, tweet us know. at always already on. Yeah. Um, Stay tuned for our coming announcement. Oh yeah, Sound our loud. mysterious <laughs> uh, new announcement yes. that we will not speak of yet, but is a thing to be the announced. The announcement who shall not be named. Oh. <laughs> Wait, what? Is it Voldemort? Yes. <laughs> Next guest on the podcast, I've with Voldemort. A good segue out. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Have an always already day. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by James Pyle Jr., Emily Crandall, Rachel 
Brown, B. Altman, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, or dreams to analyze to alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysreadyon. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to our RSS feed, subscribe, and leave us a review on iTunes. Coming up on the next episode, you'll be hearing an episode of Gunrelayness interview, James interviewing musician Bad Infinity on how you make Deleuze inspired electronic music. As always, thank you to my friend Leah for her static loops, which is our intro music, and in this case, thank her also for her cover of Montreal's Promethean Curse. And also, always, already, thank you to Dee for his cover of Landslide that you're listening to right now. Until next time, bye! Speaking of, uh, not really. Um, <laughs> I'm a pretty little girl. All right, so we have... <laughs> Why would you say that? That's so weird. <laughs> Inside joke, sorry. <laughs>